Let's pray. Father, take these words from your, from your scripture as we enter back into this book, Matthew, and use them, I pray, to give us a better understanding of who you are in this life that you've called us to live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Do you ever notice how questions um, have the ability, if you listen to someone or you listen to yourself with the question that arises, it has the ability to kind of help you understand where a person may be at. Sometimes questions actually reveal what's going on in a person's heart. Those, those kind of questions that, that have been, you know, you get asked and, and you go, oh, I kind of maybe get where this person's coming from. Uh, I remember those days when I would ask when, when things were a little bit tense in our marriage relationship and there was this desire on my wife's part for me to be more engaged in the family and I would take out my daytime. Remember you guys, anybody remember daytimers, not the smartphones, but daytimers and you'd take them out and, and I would try and prove to her and I'd say, how many hours do I need to be home? That's a little revealing. And I can't believe how many times I would do that. And I, I imagine my wife was going, this guy is clueless. She could, she could really care how many hours I was home. What she wanted was my heart. Or, or you've been involved maybe with working with youth, or you maybe had this question. I remember as a youth pastor, I would get asked this question often when we'd talk about dating and, 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 uh, and sex and things of the opposite, uh, opposite um, those of opposite sex. And, and they would say something like, um, a guy would go, you know, so how far can I go with a girl? And it's okay. Where's the boundary? How far do I trespass? What can I get away with? And you kind of go, I kind of get where that heart is coming from. Or the question we'll read in a few weeks, because you read some of these questions um, as Jesus goes to these family lessons, and Peter stands up and he says, Jesus, got a good question for you. How many times do I got to forgive? Give me the amount that I can measure up to. Matthew 18.1 begins with this heart-revealing question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Says one of the disciples as they come to Jesus. Who among us gets the highest rank when you establish your rule, Jesus? The question, I think, is interesting because they had been kind of arguing and, and fighting, and, and the different Gospels tell us that Jesus was aware of what was being discussed among them. But he waited to... To get from them this question. He waited for it to bubble to the surface. It's really interesting that questions can reveal how much of God's presence is in us if you pay attention to them. By your questions and those that others may ask you, you can discover some interesting things. Kind of like how deeply is God's character formed in your being? How far have the values of heaven taken hold in your heart? How much have I been shaped by God or my culture or my upbringing? I tell you, questions are important to listen to, to try and understand yourself and your own heart. So let's take a moment and get the context of Matthew here, because we we, we left off on this this passage of Scripture back in in the end of uh, the, the end of June. It was 
to pick it up here. In chapter 16, we had just come to this point where Jesus had turned away from the religious leaders and he no longer was going to deal with them. He had spent his time. He realized that they had chosen a blindness to not want to hear and not want to see the work of the Spirit of God through the ministry that he had come. So chapter 16 and 17 is Jesus leaving, and it's a narrative, and it's, it's basically Jesus walking out life, meeting the needs of people, and as he would do so, he would then stop every once in a while, and he would teach a little bit, or you would find from the narrative some lessons that Matthew wanted us to understand. Well, we come to chapter 18. As you look at chapter 18, verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked... This moves from narrative to now for a chapter, almost like being in a classroom. It's as if Jesus says, grab a paper and pen. He's not addressing the crowd or the religious leaders any longer. He he has almost like a closed seminar type of situation where he brings them together. And it may be not just 12, it could be more than 12. The disciples are at a critical turning point in ministry here. In six months, Jesus is going to go to the cross. Jesus will be leaving them, and they will have to carry on all that he's been teaching them, all that they've seen evidenced in his life. And so Jesus stops and he says, I want to teach you what it means to be a part of my family. How to live. And so in preparation for his leaving them, he shares what he expects for them as followers, as a part of his family. It's their senior year intensive. It's the last thing they're going to do. In fact, if you look at this passage of Scripture in chapter 18, it's the fourth discourse in Matthew or or, or series of teachings, which began in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, then chapter 10 where it talks about Jesus giving instructions to his his disciples as they were to go out and, and minister to the various towns, and then chapter 13 about kingdom parables and what it means to live in the kingdom today. And then chapter 18 is what I would kind of call these, these modern family lessons. He says, I've invited you because of this new testament, this new covenant I'll be making by my blood. I'm bringing you into a new family. The family of Israel is transitioning now into this family of God that will bring in not just this nation, but all kinds of people. And so before I go, I want to make sure that you understand very clearly what it means to, to live in my family. These are vital instructions. So if you look at chapter Chapter, verse 1, chapter 18, he'll begin by saying, I tell you the truth. It, it's, the, it's the phrase that is, listen up. What I'm about to say is of utmost importance. And so he says, at that time, verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And verse 2, he called a little child to him and he placed a child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children... He will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 5, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus basically is saying, unless you change and become like little children, you won't see heaven, let alone get into it. Greatness has a new measure. He is basically saying there is a new standard by which you will be measured before the eyes of God for what it means to be great. He says there's a new scale that you get weighed by that, that, that says, in a sense, what is, in his eyes, something of great significance. 
And so he, as he's teaching, and often Jesus does, he hears the question and he looks around because he loves object lessons. He realizes that people remember things and, and they, they grow in, in, in their understanding when they have something visible before him. And so he sees this little child, takes this little child, could be five, six years of age, brings the little child over, and he kind of, far, I can imagine him placing his hands on this little child's shoulders. And he, he says, guys, I want you to look at this little child. Because here, as you look at this little child, are some things in this little child that I want you to begin to understand that within this child there is a greatness that if you become like this little child, you will become great in the eyes of God. And so here's some measures that I just want to share with you. Three simple measures that I think you can see in a child. You could get more, you could talk about more, but we're just going to talk about these three because I think there's significance. And the measure of the first one is the measure of what I call insignificance. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, guys, I want you to look at your question about being the highest rank, about being the one that will be first, the one that will have um, the greatest notoriety before all in the kingdom and before others as as you rule. I want you to realize it's okay to not be a big shot. I want you to understand in my kingdom the measure of insignificance. Guess what, folks? Not everyone can be on a reality TV show. And aren't you glad? Did you know this phenomenon of reality TV reveals more than I think a voyeuristic cultural obsession? I think it exposes the deep need of man's and and women's heart, the, the human heart. This deep need to be something, to be someone, to be noticed, to be seen, to be recognized, to look significant. There is a drive, I think, in every heart for this significance. We're driven to base our significance often, as you look at that, on someone else and and what someone else might think. It's the kind of what I call Sally Field's Oscar acceptance speech that bubbles up from within. It says, you like me. You really, really like me. You've affirmed me. And so Jesus calls over a child, not primarily because children are outstanding examples of humility, because we could look at children to see sometimes when they're not. But he calls his child over, not so much as that, is in order to point out that in God's family, if you really want to be great, you must be prepared to be insignificant in the eyes of others. If you really want to be great, you must be prepared to be insignificant in the eyes of others. Because children in the ancient world were viewed as insignificant. They were often, you know, you, you know, not to be seen or heard, but to be out of the way. In fact, in an article called Abandonment and Infanticide in the Ancient Times, the Treatment of Children in Roman and Pre-Roman Societies, uh, author Michael Strike says, Infanticide, child abandonment, selling children to slavery, and other practices were just common in, in antiquity. Those societies that worship Baal or many variations of Baal went so far as to engage even in the sacrifice of children. This was so prevalent throughout all of the ancient world that he lists, for example, in Sparta, the community leaders called ephors inspected newborns for defects. Unwanted females and males were, with obvious defects were flung into a ravine. The Egyptians, who also practiced infanticide, would leave the newborn infants at a dump. Abandoned children were often taken by speculators who would raise such children as slaves 
profiting from their sale, and if they weren't worth much at a certain point, they would just abandon them as little orphans. Some of the children ended up as prostitutes. The late historian John Boswell of Yale University, who writes a whole book on this, identifies several admonitions made by the early church, uh, Christian church fathers against abandonment. So here, some like 100, 200 years into um, past the death of Christ, into the early church, the church fathers are writing about the fact that you shouldn't abandon your children. And here's his point. He says, because some might become prostitutes, and as a result, some of you fathers might have relations with them, and you would have incest. That's He actually writes that. One of the earliest tasks of the Christian church, have you seen throughout the Acts of the Apostles, was that they were a community that came together and would care for widows who were not significant because they couldn't add anything, and for children who were orphaned. And so Jesus is looking around and he's saying, In your day, as you look around, you guys, in the culture we live in, children are not greatly valued. Less they're productive. The disciples' attitudes toward children were reflected in the very culture they lived in. And that's why when you think about it, when, when, when you read in Scripture, and it's not just some little thing, when these kids come to Jesus and, and parents are training some of them to try and have their children blessed by Jesus, the disciples are a little bit bothered because, you know what, they're a waste of Jesus' time. They're just not that significant for what God has to do. And so Jesus stood apart from his culture. He valued children because they were made in the image of God and they were God's creation. And he was pointing out to people who were addicted to finding their worth and in, in, in their value in what they do and in, in what others think of them. He said, you've got to become like this. And I don't think God is overly impressed with our standards of greatness today. I doubt God sits up there and is amazed as sometimes we are. Can you see the father turning to Jesus going, wow, can, can that guy hit that little white ball far? Let's take, take the book and remember his name. Because when he gets up here, he's getting in. Honestly, you think God values the things we value? If he does, we're in trouble. Can you see Jesus doing the wave with a bunch of angels this afternoon? Because some guy has run across the goal line three or four times and, and has gotten a contract for seven years for $100 million. He's going, that guy is valuable. Get his name. Now, I'm not coming down on Adrian Peterson and the Vikings. Just hear me. Do you think God has the same measure? Isn't it interesting that their question was, is, was Jesus... We want to know, it kind of betrays in a sense what's going on in our heart. We want to know when you come into this place of rule, who's going to be sitting at these chairs next to you that are going to be looked upon as being significant. And the question is this. Are you willing to be insignificant? Are you okay if nobody sees? Are you okay... If no one validates your worth in the things you do, are you okay with knowing that God sees even when no one else notices? Are you willing to be good for goodness sake? Think about that for a second. Are you willing to do what you know is right? Are you willing to step out and to do this little sacrifice of love that we even talked about in the lives of someone else? Not because they're going to respond and you're going to get something, but because it is just a good thing to do.
I just want you to pause for a second. One of the deep desires that I've had when I came to this church and still continues is that we listen because God's voice does speak to us. He, He can speak to our heart. And I just want you to pause for a second as you think about your life, as you think about this week ahead of you. Is God calling you to do something like a child that's just insignificant in the sense that it doesn't matter? You just do it because you know it's good. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to what he might place on your heart to do. And follow through in obedience, whether you get any recognition here or not. Because the measure is not of, of the reality TV, notice me, it's the measure of well done, good and faithful servant. There's another measure here. It's the measure of what I call simplicity. It's, it's a simple phrase that would go with that. It's okay that you don't know everything. Have you ever noticed when, you know, Jesus probably had this little child in front of him. Have you ever noticed how little children don't need to know everything? They're okay with knowing some of the answers. They're okay living with mystery. In fact, it's that humble attitude that makes children, I think, such great learners. It's that lowly position that they take where it's not based on knowledge, but it's based on trust that causes them to be so teachable. At some point, we become know-it-alls. Our security comes from what we know, and what we know we then can control, and what we control by what we control we feel secure. But put us in a place where we don't know, we don't understand, and we can't control it, and what happens? And probably every person in this room. Anybody have an idea? Fear. Immediately you become afraid. And so Jesus, because this little child come in, in, in this measure of simplicity, unless you become like this little child where you're okay with mystery, or you're okay with the fact that you may not know. This is the heart of what one of my family members look like. You know, sometimes God uses children to teach us. I've been reading a book, and, and some of you who are kind of in meetings that I'm in, etc., are probably tired of me talking about this, but it's had an impact on my life. And it's not the one that's been real popular lately, which is Heaven is for Real, about this little boy. It's, it's, it's called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. I've been so impacted by um, the, the life... Uh, that this little child has and how it's impacted his father, Kevin Malarkey, and his six-year-old son, Alex. In 2004, there was this horrific accident. The father, Kevin, was driving a little Alex, six-year-old, was in the back seat in his car seat, and and when he got hit, um, the father was thrown out of the car. And... um, I'm not going to tell you, there's all kinds of little details around it that are really interesting, but little Alex is in the back seat, and what happened was his spinal cord at the base was severed. And uh, he he lay there, and when people came, one of them saw him stop breathing, and the other one came, and he wasn't breathing. A number of people, all different ones orchestrated by God, came in and were praying for this little child all through that whole event. And um, this little child was was in a coma for three months and was paraplegic and went through all these different things. But in 2000, and just miracle after miracle, I can just tell you, some of the healing that took place in his spine, some of the stories are just amazing. In 2009, Alex made 
international news as the first child ever to undergo the surgery that was made famous by Christopher Reeves. And what's interesting about this book is there's, there's parallel accounts from people who, not necessarily believers or doctors or others, who, who talk about this whole story. But at one point, the father makes a statement because he's learning so much about God and about living with not knowing and, and living with this child who sees into this spiritual realm, which we just talk about, about angels and things like that. But this child has this, this view of what's going on with such simplicity and humility that at one point he, he, he talks about his paraplegic son who is growing and they believe God's going to continue to heal. It's still he's in this path of healing. It's amazing. He says, my son couldn't function in a physical world, but it was difficult for me to function in a spiritual world. Who had the greater disability? (laughs) What a powerful, this little child was so simple and through it all, so trusting. And this little Alex's simplicity and spiritual sensitivity profoundly not just taught his father, but all kinds of other people. And now through this book that God has used as to teaching all kinds of people about just the simple work of God and the trust of God and the reality of God in this world that really parallels what we read in his word. And so I thought about it. I continued to think, what's really worse? A physical disability in a physical world due to an unresponsive physical body. Or a spiritual disability in the spiritual world due to an unresponsive heart. How often, Kevin, do you live with an unresponsive heart that disables you to live the way that God calls you to live? How often do you live with an unresponsive heart to the things of the Spirit that, that force you to live because of your choices to live in this in a way that you don't see what God's doing? And you can't give praise and you don't give thanks, even in the midst of the difficulty. I can imagine Jesus with his hand on this child, this little simple trusting child. And he says to these guys, you want to be great? And he says, guess what? It's simple. It's a measure of simplicity. It's okay to not know everything. And I can hear God saying, you really, folks, you really don't need to know so much. You just need to know that I do. I remember when my girls were younger and they'd ask me questions about something. And I, you know, a lot of times I'd be reading stories to them at bedtime and they'd ask a question, you know, one of those why questions. And, and, and I would feel a little bit stumped, so then I would work really hard. And, and sometimes I knew the answer, you know, and I, I had a pretty good answer for it. And I would start into it and I would get about two sentences into it and they'd kind of go, that's enough, Dad. You ever had that experience? You know, I don't need any more information. I think they were just mainly satisfied to know that I knew. Can you kind of put your hand up at a certain point and say, God, that's enough. Thank you. I'm just so glad that you know, and I will trust you in this. If you want me to have more revelation, which there are times God gives you revelation, then bring it on and may my heart be open. But I am going to take a posture of trust. I ask you to pause and think a second. If there is this measure of what I call insignificance, there is also this measure of what I call simplicity. And you may be in that place where you're saying, I really want to know more. If I could know more, I could control it. Then if I could control it, I'd feel secure. And God is saying, you know what? It's okay that you don't know right now. In fact, there may be a reason you don't know. I want you to merely be like a child and trust. And then there's this what I call measure of imperfection. It's the little line that says, it's okay, you're not perfect. 
That's, that's a tough one for, I think, all of us. It is for me. It's the measure of imperfection. It's okay you're not perfect. At some point, failing and falling down isn't okay. Ever seen little kids? They know failing and falling down often is the way to actually walking. Do you ever wonder when you grew out of imperfection and needed to be perfect? There's a huge difference, folks, between maturity and perfection. I'm not saying immaturity. God calls us to grow into maturity. And growing into maturity is this process of being aware of the simple truth, like Jesus putting his hand on this little kid's shoulders and saying, you need to change. You need to be converted in the sense that you need to have a mind that has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. You need to open your heart to God and recognize that it's your imperfection that as you seek to grow and understand me and trust and and do those insignificant things, that you will begin to grow and understand that I can even use your imperfection because I will bring you to maturity. And that's what he calls us to. You will not, not one of us, be perfect in this life. The goal in life as a member of God's family is maturity, not perfection. One of the watchwords I have for my life, I have for us as a congregation, is just show up. Be in real relationship. Um, don't be in relationship with other people about this person. Be in relationship with that person. And be in such a way that you're in relationship that you will take responsibility for your life. If you sinned, admit it, and go to that person ask for forgiveness. If that person has offended you, don't go walk around and share it. But you go to that person and you get it right. When a person isn't coming along like you want, you learn what God says is patience. But yet you still call them to grow. This whole kind of dynamic that says show up and then grow up and that's what i believe we're about and at some point we fall for that age-old lie that we must be perfect when we believe like adam and eve that we must be god and, and folks it is this pride that is sin it is this arrogance that we can somehow measure up in ourselves and by ourselves that imprisons us and releases the worst in us We sin, we hide, we refuse to see how much we need God. And we refuse to recognize that we are imperfect beings. And so we try and live in this world looking perfect. And so like Adam and Eve, you grab leaves. And these kind of leaves don't work well, so you look for bigger leaves. And you've got to live in this world where you have these kind of leaves. And these leaves of accomplishment, and these leaves of success, and these leaves of being popular, these leaves that you try to cover your real self with. And you want to do it because in some way you think that if people can see you this way, you'll be okay. And God goes, I know you're not okay. I know that in every one of the people here who have been children of Adam and Eve, there is sin. And this sin is this inability to get real with what's going on in your life and recognizing your need of God. And that you are never in and of yourself going to be able to measure up. And yet we try to do it. And so Jesus puts this little child in front of him. And he says, herein lies your greatness. The acknowledgement that you fail, that you fall short, that you don't measure up, that you actually sin willfully you hurt others and you offend God and you have rebelled and you've turned away and you've done wrong when you could have done right your greatness comes in accepting this reality and your salvation lies in seeing yourself for who you are and trusting that this God loves you more that God's love is so great listen to this that God's love is so great that he became insignificant became a man And in Jesus simply trusted his father and took on our imperfection and sin and made us perfect and sinless in his eyes. And now go live in that love. Walk in the freedom of that love. 
Grow up in that love. I've shared this before, but it's, it was such a mark in my life, and it seems silly, but I remember one time I was on a flight from Miami to Dallas to Chicago, and on my flight from, <laughs> from Miami to Dallas, um, and I didn't have any clothes with me, just my briefcase, I was wearing these kind of lighter pants, white pants, and I'm on the plane. And I like being on the plane because I like people serving me, you know, Diet Cokes and, and some peanuts and, and reading. I'm not one of those kind of guys who tries to save everybody on the plane. I like, and so I get in there and I am reading and I was busy doing, and I knocked the Coke down and it spilled on my pants. And you know how it's underneath? That's just a rotten feeling. (laughs) Everyone's feeling sorry for you. The guy next to me was thrilled I didn't spill it his way. And I remember feeling so embarrassed, which is shame. And I remember walking out of the plane kind of carrying my newspaper and my briefcase. And I, and I just didn't want anyone to see that. And I remember walking around, just starting to go through the airport, because I didn't want people to think I wasn't perfect, I guess. And then when did I ever think I was perfect? Because I know I'm not perfect. My wife knows I'm not perfect. My kids know. Um, you know. So I remember just going, you know, i got to give up the charade. God sees me for who I am. He really loves me. You know what? I'm just not perfect. I blow it. And I remember it was so freeing. I took the paper and I walked like this. I had some eyes looking at me, but I was thinking to myself, you've done this too. (laughs) Why do we come and think as you're sitting next to people that this person's got their whole act together? You know what? Every person in this world needs the love of God to to come and say, take away the charade, take away the leaves, take away the hiding. Just admit the fact that you're sinful, that you're not perfect. And what God came to do was to give you his life so that you could begin to grow up and show up in this life, no matter what anyone else thinks, walking freely through wherever it is, knowing this truth, that God loves you and he has provided the perfect covering for you in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We're going to be little children. We're going to be a kind of people that goes, we'll do what's insignificant. And and we will not know everything. And we also understand that this God who gave us Jesus loves us so much that he accepts me in my sin. And because he loves me so much, I don't want to sin. I want to walk in that love and give that love to others. Let's pray. That's the lesson I believe God wants this family to know. Let's pray together. Father, I would ask that you would take these words and thoughts and this family that you wanted to leave behind when you went to heaven you would look here and go, that family's here. They're like kids. They've learned the lessons from little ones. They're okay being insignificant. They don't need to be the biggest, grandest, most happening church in the city. It doesn't matter. It just matters that they're just willing to do the good things that I place before you, and they're willing to obey and not have to know it all, and they're willing to walk in my love and give that love to others. Praise God. That's what he's doing. We thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.